Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligent Squared. I'm producer Faye Adabita. For this episode, we're jumping back a few centuries to take a new look at a trailblazing writer, Margaret Cavendish. Born in England in 1623 to a wealthy family, Cavendish's writing ranges from philosophy to poetry and plays. At a time when the world was dominated by men, she defied the conventions of the time by writing under her own name and even wrote what is now considered to be a proto-science fiction novel, The Blazing World. So why do we rarely hear her name today? Looking to put that right is journalist and now author Francesca Peacock. Her recent book, Pure Wit, The Revolutionary Life of Margaret Cavendish, aims to tell the world more about the life of one of the UK's boldest writers. Joining Francesca to talk about the book is the historian, writer and podcaster Helen Carr. Helen specialises in medieval history and is author of the best-selling book, The Red Prince. Let's join Helen now with more. So I am joined today by Francesca Peacock, who is a writer, arts journalist and author of Pure Wit, the revolutionary life of Margaret Cavendish. She has also written for The Telegraph, The Times, The TLS and a roster of other publications. And it is a joy to be chatting to you today, Francesca. Thank you for being here. Hi, Helen. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much. So we're going to be talking primarily about Margaret Cavendish, the subject of your of your um, debut book. I mean, of the women living in the 17th century, we know comparatively quite a lot about Margaret Cavendish. But it's it's often with even better known women like Margaret, it's still quite hard to recover certain aspects of their life. So, you know, you begin your book, um, you begin your book, I hope I'm not giving any spoilers away here, with the end of her life, but I wanted to begin the podcast quite naturally with the beginning of her life. Um, was it quite hard to recover her, her childhood? And and what did you what did you find out about her early life and her childhood, which actually I think from, from reading your, your book seemed to me quite bohemian. Um, yeah. And do you think this, how do you think this influenced her later in her life and her, particularly in her literary output? Definitely. So Margaret Cavendish is one of the 17th century women who like crops up again across letters, across sources, uh, throughout the Civil War and then into the Restoration after 1660. Um, and she appears in so many bizarre and different guises. You know, she'll flit across a letter dressed up kind of almost like a fairy or she'll be described being pulled in a carriage by eight white bulls. Um, but before all of that happens, she is born in 1623. So in the years before England uh, falls into Civil War. And you're right to say her childhood is quite non 
typical or non-traditional, um, we might say, and also quite difficult to, to work out exactly what was going on. But she's the last daughter to quite a large family of royalists living out in Essex near Colchester in a house, a big country house built on a former abbey. So former monastic land and her family weren't particularly aristocratic uh, although they were very wealthy so they got money via political appointments by politics by being lawyers and um, that's also how they got the house and she is the last youngest child of the latest generation of that family so by the time that she's living there it was a very comfortable childhood even if the earlier stages had been less so um, but her family history is absolutely bizarre so she's born in 1623 but a long way before that her father had had to be sent into exile just after he got her mother pregnant. And so her eldest son, her eldest brother, uh, her mother's son, is born out of Weglock and isn't allowed to inherit anything because um, her father had been fighting a duel and had to be sent off. Um, so by the time that she grows up, she's kind of quite alone a lot of the time, living in this very big house with a lot of books to read. So that we know that she could read uh, a lot of the works of Shakespeare, some John Donne, and all she did all day was read, write in what she called her baby books, which are now sadly lost. And they were pages and pages that she filled with stories she was making up. And she designed her own clothes and uh, was spent her days wearing her own clothes and taking more delight in them in toys, she says. Um, so yeah, definitely a non-traditional childhood and one which was not actually filled with that much education. Uh, so that in that respect, is very much traditional for a woman of the period. Uh, she always describes how she wasn't really taught anything other than how to serve and how to dance um, but was able to spend all of her time reading and writing. So it was a real natural love of learning and you know I suppose she did have that intellectual freedom to be creative with with what she was reading and how she was you know um, putting those ideas and those thoughts that were running through her her mind into into practice through her her baby books which god what a loss it was all an archival loss to like to not have that it's kind of reminds me of um, the Brontes and their um, imaginary world that they created for themselves when they were children. Completely, yeah. And also a similar type of thing, her later writing, she's always writing these crazy stories, we call them prose romances now, where people do travel to new worlds and everything is topsy-turvy, which is almost yeah. like the, the Bronte yeah, sisters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I forget the name of the world that they created. It'll come to me exactly as soon as we stop talking, of course. But um, but yeah, it does remind me of that. But obviously Margaret was um, Margaret was earlier in the in the 17th century and just before she was um, just before she was born and I love the scandalous background to her parents romance I think that's um, just such a wonderful um, anecdote to you know her later life as well it's like a nod to the scandalous Margaret later on um, but you know she did was she was born into into a, a blazing world as we <laughs> forgive the pun on her on her, her book later on but she was born into the world of the civil war which was probably the most destructive bloody awful war that um, happened in history prior to the world wars um, the English civil war was um, was horrific it was the first use of use of heavy artillery on um, as, as part of a civil war it was and it, it literally ripped families apart and that was something that Margaret experienced, wasn't it? I mean, how do you think that, um, how did the civil war, how did that massive rupture within the society affect her as a young person? 
Completely. So uh, she's living quite an isolated life in Colchester. And one day, as one historian puts it, when talking about this outbreak of violence in that area of Essex, uh, her elder brother stepped out of his back garden into the pages of history. Um, So her family were very royalist and had been for a while. And which meant that once things started to go slightly more sour with the relationship between the king and the parliament, Um, They began to prepare arms and aid and horses and all of these things to be packed up to go help the king. And her eldest brother had been sorting all of these out. And uh, the more parliamentarian uh, townspeople of Colchester had set up a watch. They were worried by what the Lucas family were up to. And they storm the family house. So they break it open. They ransack it. They steal everything down from bedclothes to china to cutlery to candlesticks. There are huge, huge records of everything that was taken from a lot of actually the more wealthy houses from there around the area. And they also take the people who were still in the house. So we know that one of them is Margaret's mother. And we also know that there were two girls, perhaps, or one, and they were paraded through the town and incarcerated in the town jail um, and left there for a couple of days. And it's very hard to tell if one of those other other daughters was Margaret um, because she doesn't write about it in her later autobiography. But there's every chance that perhaps it was too painful to, to recount. I mean, it must have been so humiliating. But they're so quickly wrapped up in the civil war violence on a very, very, very real level. And one of the most horrifying anecdotes about that, that moment is um, that the people who'd you know, besieged the house, opened the family vault and stabbed all of the coffins. Um, And then under a decade later, so once the war was very much underway, the same thing happens. But this time they cut off the hair of the recently not even decaying uh, corpses to wear as wigs and one of those one of those corpses would have been Margaret's mother who had died in the interim but Margaret's whole life is very much altered by this war not only does her early life get very wrapped up into it she then goes to become a lady-in-waiting to Henrietta Maria so uh, King Charles I's wife who had been involved in the war effort in the north of the country and then was in Oxford in exile Margaret travels with her over the channel to France to an exiled court in Paris and then Paris Saint-Germain and she also meets a royalist commander who she ends up marrying. But before that, her brother Charles Lucas becomes one of the most um, famous, famous deaths in the Civil War when he's publicly executed uh, for his role as a royalist soldier. Yeah, so it's sort of this backdrop of immense trauma and talking about the, you know, the ex- this sort of exhumation of um, of her ancestors and her mother and her hair being cut off. It's awful, but it sort of reminds me later on what happens to Cromwell, obviously, when um, after the restoration, Cromwell is exhumed and, um, you know, uh, he is posthumously beheaded again. Um, so it's um, it sort of reminds me of that in a way, this, this weird... Um, I don't know. It's quite. It's this is. It's a really sort of dark side of of war, isn't it? The sort of no respect for even the for even the dead. But that must have been an incredibly traumatic experience for Margaret. And interesting that you say she doesn't add it into her into her autobiography. Um, and whether that is just because it was a, such a traumatic experience, or whether she wasn't was absent at the time. But um, yeah, and she wasn't absent for so much of the war because she does end up writing her first. I mean, not to to become a spoiler, but she does end up as a writer, and her first volume of poetry comes out in sixteen fifty. And in it are poems describing the horrors of war in such brutal terms, you know, with heads flying across battlefields, squirts of blood. I mean, really, really probably gruesome. And she also writes formal elegies for her brothers who have been killed uh, for, for being royalists. Yeah, yeah, I almost wonder if that was a sort of, thera- or in a way, almost a therapeutic practice, a way of heal- for her for sort of healing from that 
from that conflict that it, that impacted the lives of everyone. I mean, this was the first war that it wasn't a war that men went off to, you know, France, whatever, in their armies and they fought in battles. This was a war that it was, you know, men, women and children who were being impacted by it. Um, that's what happens because yeah. there were so many of these, these little sieges that took place. Um, yeah, and it wasn't, landscape. you know... We often think of war, particularly now, as being defined along gender lines. You know, men fight and women stay at home. And that's really not the case with the Civil War. I mean, it is obviously in one case because it was broadly men who were fighting. But we have stories of women, you know, leading besieged houses or even actually taking up arms in many cases or women cross-dressing to join uh, armies. So very much a kind of almost total war. I mean, properly horrific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It is. It was total, and it's interesting that she, you know, she experienced that. But then later, later in life, which we will we will discuss, she also experienced almost the complete opposite. And in the court of Charles II in the Restoration period, um, which was this sort of like, you know, circus of hedonism, wasn't it? Um, it couldn't be more different. But before that, she met when she was in France um, with the Queen, with Henrietta Maria. She met her future husband. Can you talk to me? about William Cavendish and what that meeting was like. And, um, you know, how did they, how, I mean, would you say they fell in it fell in love? Would you say that it was more of a diplomatic ag agreement and arrangement between two relatively well-to-do families? How would you, how would you describe their union? Yeah, um, so it's so fascinating. And I think you probably do have to say it is love. So Margaret, very young, still very much in her early 20s, is sitting in court in Paris. She's in exile. She doesn't speak French. She's there with a court who she's actually really failed to get along with. So she later writes a play about her experience and she describes herself as Lady Bashful. Um, so that's her character in the play. This is only made better by the fact that she doesn't give Lady Bashful any lines to stay on, stay on stage. So she writes herself in as a non-entity. Um, so her life is quite horrible and it's compounded and made worse by the fact she then gets dysentery. So she's probably having the worst time she's ever had. Her family are all at war. She doesn't know when she'll see anyone again and she's just suffered an absolutely terrifying journey uh, across the channel to France where they thought they might die and all of the ladies in waiting were crying and throwing up and she's sitting in the court and one day a man appears with an absolutely ridiculously glamorous coach pulled by a stupid number of horses and he's all so brilliantly outrageously glamorously dressed and he turns up and he gives the horses to Henrietta's mother the queen mother in France um, and it's a display of wealth. It's a kind of absolutely ridiculously flamboyant display of, of, of a kind of wealth he doesn't have. But Margaret doesn't know that at the time. And it was a bid in order to try and get more credit from his lenders. And he is actually in exile himself. He was a royalist commander. He'd had to flee to France after the Battle of Marston Moor, which he had lost horrifically. And it was a kind of massacre of his troops. Um, it's debatable whether he actually had to go into exile or if it was a kind of humiliation and shame that... that, that made it so but he turns up there and very quickly he meets Margaret and she writes that he didn't mind that she was so bashful and we have the most amazing record of of their writings to each other so William writes her something like 70 over 70 love poems so at a rate of more than one every two days and Margaret responds with these letters that we still have in the British Library and William's poetry is quite bad it's the kind of poetry that's the product of a man who's read all of the courtly love poetry of the likes of a tradition very old and much before him. And then he's read a bit of the saucy stuff with John Donne, but he 
very much can't do it himself. So at one point he rhymes cunny with funny. Um, he says all sorts of horrific things. And there's a three decade age gap between William and Margaret. So William has been married before. He's had five children, three daughters, two boys, and his wife has recently died. And in a bid to try and minimise the age gap between them, he says old and dry wood makes the best fire, which is quite a, a horrible poetic I, image. <laughs> and Margaret writes these letters back and her handwriting is awful so she describes at the top of one page play pray leave the fault of my writing to my pen and it's clearly not the pen's fault because over the rest of her life she must have had many different pens and none of her handwriting is any easier to read um but she writes these letters which are quite touching she's responding to quite overt poetry in a really interesting way so they exchange love tokens Margaret writes embarrassingly she's embarrassed by the fact that she can't be so open about her her desire for William because it's not what women are meant to do she then retracts that she gets into has ties herself into knots over what she's meant to say and what she's not meant to say to William and it becomes quite clear that quite rapidly an like an emotional tie has developed between them and there's also a kind of literary criticism element to it as well because in response to one of William's poems Margaret writes my lord let your ear limit your poetry which might be one of my favorite lines ever um so quite quickly they develop this relationship and towards the end of their courtship Margaret writes William a letter where she describes looking out upon the world as all of the hopes had taken opium and the whole world is a place of dissolution. So it's an incredibly depressive letter about how, you know, the whole world has, has fallen into disrepair. She doesn't know when she'll see her family, if her family are alive or dead. And it becomes quite clear that she's already relying on him emotionally, uh, despite the fact they hadn't known each other for that long and it is a three-decade age gap. And um, towards the end of that year, they are married after such a quick courtship, but there were already rumours that they'd been married in secret. And so Margaret probably marries without the permission of Henrietta Maria, which as a lady-in-waiting was very much not what you're meant to do. And her whole end of the letters are tied up in excitement about William, hatred of how the world has turned out and how depressed she is, and also absolute fear that the Queen won't like me anymore, is basically what she says. So it's kind of absolutely incredibly touching, but there definitely is some form of, of deep emotion between these two people, even though it's probably clear that William had married Margaret because he only had two sons as heirs. It was the middle of the war and he probably probably wanted more as well as a lot of as a lot of men did in um in, in the past <laughs> and, um, but i think it's important to say there's been a lot made of there's been quite a lot made of their age gap and mm. i think that historically speaking i don't think we can always put yeah. as much on that as um as it has been suggested you know that i think you're so that right. it's such a yeah. huge age gap because that yeah but by you it know, wasn't we, unusual it, it wasn't yeah. unusual and actually these pe people could have very close bonds very um you know very close relationships and it wasn't necessarily this you know f father daughter sort of you know, Freudian thing going on. It was very much like this was a very normal um, contractual agreement. You often had people, uh, even larger age gaps. You had children, you know, your children being married to each other. Yeah. It was it was quite normal. And so I don't think that she would have necessarily seen him as 
somebody who was much, much older than her, it would have been quite a common, uh, it would have been a common relationship, basically. She definitely would, I think. And um, so one of their friends, so uh, John Evelyn, very, very famous 17th century letterist and writer, marries Mary Evelyn in uh, the same chapel. And I think, I'd have to check this in the book, but I think she's about 12 or 13 when she is married. And, you know, he's he's uh, William Cavendish's contemporary. So yeah, you're, you're so right. Uh, what is interesting about their relationship is they are aware of the age gap. Um, like William is himself aware of it, which is quite interesting. Um, so there's definitely a slight consciousness there, probably because she is the second wife. Yeah. But that again, but it, as you say, that's quite a common thing. You know, men yeah. would remarry if their wife died, or, you know, yeah. earlier in childbirth, than, in childbirth, yeah. whatever. That was very common for a man to remarry um, quite quickly as well. But um, William Cavendish, what I'm sort of getting from your, what I got from your book and what I'm getting from you here was that he was really a source of freedom for, for Margaret. I mean, she had that first step of, of freedom into a wider world when she became a um, lady in waiting, Henrietta Maria, but that also doesn't come without its restrictions and boundaries. But her marriage with him was a, was a, it was a method, an opportunity for Margaret to really step outside the bounds of what she had been, you know, so enclosed within, within her family home. Um, she had opportunity, she had a platform to be able to exhibit her skills and her, her interest in literature and arts and philosophy. But it's, but it's not to say that, you know, I, I mean, it's not to say that she necessarily would have done that without him. Um, oh, it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's how do we kind of place her agency within this relationship and what was he encouraging, enabling, what was, you know, how much of him, how much of him was sort of within her work and her literary output? Completely. It's, it's almost like a liberatory, liberatory marriage. Um, I don't think we can really underplay it as to what role it has in her later, in her later life and writing. And I think, I think to do so would be to do her a real disservice and him a real disservice. So they marry and then they move uh, initially around Europe trying to find somewhere to rent. They have absolutely no money. It's quite hard to overestimate just how poor they were at the time. We think of these people as, you know, post-restoration, wealthy aristocrats with with horses and bulls and plays and all of that going on. But they really weren't. So at one point, uh, Margaret is uh, William asks Margaret to pawn some of her clothes in order to try and sort of, buy some sort food. Of like, hey, um, it sort of reminds me of like, with Nell and I kind of like very posh but just holes in our coats <laughs> completely they've got absolutely nothing to the point where they're going to try and sell anything that's on them and they just live off credit I mean they yeah. are so so deep in debt yeah. it's not funny as but so also, many royalists did at this point you yeah. know the, the way of means of survival was to cross over to the continent you had a lot of people in the low countries who had escaped um, who had escaped England under the parliamentarian under the commonwealth rule um, and you know it, people had no money because they'd either lost their money to the parliamentarian forces or they'd given it all to Charles I. And so they and so they really had nothing to go on. So they were often relying on the charities of others, weren't they? Yeah, completely. And in his previous life, William had been this big intellectual uh, academic patron. So he'd supported people like uh, Ben Johnson, like Richard Flecknoe, like uh, Thomas Hobbes most famously. And one of the most brilliant things about this is the kind of relationship swaps because whilst they'd been in England, uh, William had been Thomas Hobbes' patron, you know, had helped him with all of his writing and everything. And whilst they're over there, Hobbes has to give William a loan. Um, and in security, William has to give him um, a telescope, I think it is. Um, so 
their whole life swaps, but that also kind of gives you a way of thinking about William's relationship with Margaret is his his previous life as an academic and intellectual patron. He had been at the centre of this web of 17th century intellectuals, incredibly famous names. He'd written poems and plays and masks for him. And he was kind of a dilettante as in he did write his own poetry and we can be quite cruel about our assessment of it. But that isn't to say that he wasn't aware of what was very good literature and he was very well read and incredibly well educated. And with Margaret, he starts setting up a school for his wife. So um, they, they move and they bob around some places. They end up in Antwerp in um, Rubens' house, so the very famous painter. He very recently died and his widow was living in an absolutely beautiful house around a central courtyard with the old classical sculptures and busts that Rubens had painted. And they managed to cobble together enough money, having decided they were going to economise, to absolutely rent this absolutely glorious place. <laughs> it's just it's, It just gets better and better. It's kind of one of those amazing I mean, stories. It's, sort of like, yeah. it's like there's poverty and there's poverty. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's like, I know. <laughs> they really won. <laughs> and um, yeah. whilst they're there, uh, William and his brother, Charles, set up a school basically for Margaret and they teach her absolutely everything. It's her first experience of a systematic education because they go through teaching her about science, about history, about the classics about religion, about the royalist cause. She'd always been a royalist, but now she has a kind of philosophical underpinning for it. And they do it so methodically and not in a patronising way at all. So, you know, they are very broke, but we have receipts of Charles sending off to London to buy a scale model of the solar system in order to be able to explain it to Margaret. It's just kind of absolutely wonderful. And it's here where the marriage really comes into its own for Margaret's later life, because William, William basically funds and educates the beginning of her writing career. Um, and it's through him that she starts writing. And the volume that she starts writing in Antwerp at this point isn't her first book to come out. And that's because later we might get onto it. She has to travel over to London to try and get more money out of the parliamentarian government, basically. And she leaves this book behind. But it's called The World's Olio. And at the time, an olio was a type of soup or stew where you could put everything in. And I think we should bring it back as a term because it's quite lovely. But by that, she meant that her first book that she wrote was kind of a collection of everything she thought at that point. So she'd write, she'd say something like, my husband, William, says this about monks. He'd say, you know, he, he was very anti-Catholic. He'd say that monks were a drain on resources and added nothing to life. And she'd explicitly state her husband's opinion and then state her own. So whilst we can kind of say that her education depended on her husband, from a very, very early age, she was disagreeing with him and setting up her own opinions in a kind of rhetorical device of disagreement between them, which is really lovely. So definitely a lot of her own capacity for thought and intellectual agency and everything from a very early, early stage. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It feels like it was a it was a meeting of minds, wasn't it? It was a you know it was a relationship of two people who had probably very good conversation, and that is probably what was the the absolute fundamental aspect of their relationship was this strength in conversation and knowledge and desire of learning and 
um, you know, discussion over these things like the arts and like science and debate, um, because a lot of time was spent in conversation. You know, they were in exile. They had a lot of time to spend together. And so it seems like that that did really build the foundation, which was what made their their marriage and their relationship so solid. So, you know, we'll go on to the fact they never had children together, but it feels like that that was actually the, the strength in their relationship rather than the expectant heirs that I suppose it's at the beginning of the agreement yeah. that he thought he was going to get. Instead, he got, he got you know, a wonderful partner, a life partner. Yeah. And I think you can kind of trace that from the very early letters. I mean, it suddenly so clearly swaps to become something else. And you were saying about how they didn't have much else to do other than talk. One of my favourite stories of them in exile is they're sitting down for dinner and they've got uh, Descartes, Pierre Gassendi, who's a French philosopher, and Thomas Hobbes all around the dinner table together, which is this most amazing meeting of minds. Like, what a wonderful opportunity. And in her autobiography, Margaret writes, of course, I couldn't understand a word because they were all speaking French. <laughs> I love that. It's <laughs> so good. Os- osmosis. Maybe it was just yeah, osmosis that she sort of absorbed it. Um, but, you know, Margaret, let, let, we should point out that in the 17th century, Margaret wasn't unique in the fact that she wrote and published books. I mean, women had been doing that since, I mean, my, my period is the 14th century. And um, one of the figures that I admire and have researched is Christine de Pizan, who was writing out of the court in France in the 14th, late 14th, early 15th century. And Margaret was, as we've discussed in the past together, Margaret was a huge fan of Christine de Pizan. And actually, they explored some very similar subjects. But women at this point were publishing books, but they were often, these were feminine tracts on subjects like motherhood. So what made Margaret unique was the fact that she had chosen more traditionally masculine subjects like natural sciences and, and philosophy, um, what do you think it was exactly that, do you think that it was her time with William that drew her to these sorts of subjects and more of a natural inclination? Because she did think that she was somebody who was naturally bright, naturally clever. Or do you think that it was some of the things that she was experiencing in, in her formative years, in her childhood, that, that made her sort of lean towards yeah. these, these interests? It's such a good question and it is kind of what sets Margaret apart with her writing in the 17th century. You're very right to say that she wasn't alone in writing. What she almost is part of a far smaller group of of women who did was to publish, so not just to circulate in manuscripts, but to publish through the printing press and to do it with their name attached to it rather than just initials or by a lady. Although, of course, women have been doing that with manuscript circulation for, for, for a while. Um, And it's so interesting. So her first book that comes out is in 1653 and it's called Poems and Fancies, which sounds kind of like a female ephemeral uh, tract or something, but it really isn't. It opens with the first poem after you get through the reams of kind of um, apologetic prefatory material saying she's so sorry that as a woman she wrote a book, which you kind of have to take with a huge pinch of salt. It has to be there for her to get through to the rest. Um, The first poem is a description of how the world was made. And instead of, you know, sticking to an idea about the the structure we see in Genesis or any of the biblical stories, she says that the world was made by a female gendered uh, spirit called nature who made the world out of everything. And so her a very first work tackles everything head on. It goes on to be a work of atomist philosophy, which is one of those early theories that the world is entirely made out of all atoms that move by chance. But in this book, she also uses fairies as a metaphor for the atoms. She writes poems about war. She writes poems about royalist philosophy. She writes an amazing, amazing image of how you can see the civil war as if it were like a pack of cards where suits and families had been turned against each other, which is such an amazing image. And it's 
so clearly speaks to the kind of idea of families being ripped apart or turned against each other. And I think we can probably tie her interest both to her husband and her husband's brother Charles Cavendish was also he liked to think of himself as a mathematician and a philosopher and his notebooks are now in the British Library so there's probably very much an element there it was the stuff she was exposed to were two men who were very interested in puzzling out the world through science but also maybe broadly what the world was like in the 17th century. If we think about it, it's an era of pre-Newtonian science when everything was very, very still up for grabs. We didn't exactly know at this point um, how, how, you know, how the world was, how things moved, how gravity worked. Any of these theories were being very much debated at the time. They were the hot topics because almost everything was still possible. It was an era of possibility. And it's a, it's a real uh, fact that proves this is that after the Reformation, one of the very first, you know, new societies to get going is the Royal Society, which was dedicated to exploring the world through experimental science. So I think it's probably the period she was writing in was one one in which not only were scientific theories all up for debates, it was the era of the educated amateur as well. You know, there were no, well, very few professional scientists in the sense that we think of now, but also because the world was so turned upside down by the war that people were searching for a way to explain it. And Margaret's philosophy in science is always very, very curiously, royalistly coded, if we can use that as a phrase. She always describes how things must be in charge of others. She writes against an idea of random chance and movement because she kind of can't comprehend it. So it's probably the way the world was at the moment was just extraordinarily hard and you had to find ways of explaining things. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's such a misnomer, isn't it? This idea that prior to the Enlightenment period, we were all just sort of wandering around self-flagellating and, you know, <laughs> it was like everyone was sort of Im immensely pious. I mean, you know, godliness and religion wasn't a hugely, hugely important, massively dictatorial part of society, but there were still experiments going on. I mean, if you, if, again, referring back to the period I studied in the 14th century, Chaucer had an astrolabe. I mean, he, people were looking to astrology and the stars. It wasn't just purely... Um, it wasn't purely re religion that people dictated people's every every day. And I think that, that what you talk about, about this period being a, a time when anything is possible, but also trying to make sense of the world. I think that that's, that's really interesting in, in, you know, in the way that we can understand Margaret within the context of which she lived. And I think you've talked about how she was sort of conventional in her piety. She wasn't sort of negating the idea of a god and of a, a divine of a divine presence but she was also bringing up issues you know ab like about science and the world and you talk, talk about how she says nature was the was the beginning of everything i mean were these ideas and themes the most radical in her works or would you say that there were there were other aspects to her to her output and her literature that that shocked or um, people found problematic rather than these sort of, I suppose, slightly more uh, slightly more anti-clerical leanings? Yeah, so uh, the first thing to say is that when her first book comes out in 1653, she really did shock people. We have letters um, from Dorothy Osborne, who goes on to become a, another lady of letters. She wrote these brilliant letters to uh, the man she wasn't allowed to marry at that point in time. And um, she writes... Uh, pray if you come by a copy of that lady newcastle's book 
pray send me a copy or something. And then she writes later, oh, don't worry about it. I've already seen it. And I'm satisfied that there are soberer people in Bedlam. So she's thought of as mad very, very quickly. And it kind of becomes tied to her so quickly. And it's probably because that she was in some ways a woman writing publicly under her own name about quite radical subjects. It is almost the act of doing it rather than what was actually in the books, definitely to a degree. But also people, so that we do have letters that were written and people were reading her very seriously as a thinker. And um, people were worried by what she said as an atomist theory, uh, which is the idea that the world is made up of many different atoms that move about by chance. And that kind of, kind of definitely removes some form of, of God's agency if all of these things are moving themselves independently. She goes on to develop a theory later on in her life, which we now call vitalist materialism, which is where some types of matter have agency to move themselves and direct other parts. And this is also definitely you know, quite controversial and kind of, again, goes in in opposition to, to more godly or clerical kind of ideas, doctrinal ideas. Um, but this was an age in which lots of people were working in this space and writing things about them. So people wouldn't have necessarily thought it as a direct contradiction of sorts. Um, but what really shocks so that is one of the things that does shock people about margaret's writing is we do have letters where people are expressing a kind of distaste or uh, a worry about what she's saying but people are also worried because they send letters being like um to her husband uh, she can't possibly have written this it must have been you no woman could come up with this which is also probably the, the biggest compliment she could have received is people thought it was too too coherent and too interesting um, so that is definitely one of the elements which confused people. But in her later life, it doesn't even become her writings, which are the shocker, so much as her public displays. Um, but yeah, and even now, a lot of her philosophy isn't always read or, or you know, taken incredibly seriously because she's often more remembered for, for being kind of controversial and shocking in what she wore and how she acted rather than what she actually wrote. And you talk about, you mentioned earlier about... Margaret being described as mad and people, mad madge, people yeah. describing her as that. And I think, am I right in thinking that there was another autobiography, not an autobiography, apologies, a biography written about her that was actually the title Mad Madge? Yeah, it's right? Katie Whitaker's, and it's an absolutely brilliant biography. Yeah. But yes, it, it does choose the title Mad Match, which seems a little unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, it depends what the author does with it, I guess. But, you know, I think that, but I'm interested in that moniker because... I am also because of because Margaret did have, as it appears in from your books, she did have some mental health issues that if, you know a lot of people would identify with today. Um, and you talk about her being quite heavily medicated as well, and she sort of self medicates with these all these sort of um, I suppose natural remedies and things that were available to women in the seventeenth century. And she comes across as quite an anxious person. Um, there's there's a very tender uh, description at the beginning of your book where she talks about being worried that her sister's breathing, and yeah, it's heartbreaking. And, um, and as a mother of of two very little children, that's something that I can completely identify with because you know you do go, and, are you breathing? Okay, and then it's like, and it is it is like a kind of loving anxiety, and it's um, and I found that really interesting because she's also, on the other hand, incredibly ambitious and ostentatious. And I wanted to I wanted to know what you made of her, I suppose, her private melancholy that that she describes and her physical ailments versus her more public persona and the, the, the vision of herself that she wants the public to 
to see how she projects herself. Yeah, so there's such a division between the two. Um, the first thing is to say that the mad uh, nickname does does stay with her from when she publishes her first book all the way through into the to after the restoration, where she's being described as once again the bedlam thing comes up again, and people are always saying. <laughs> that she is genuinely mad and initially you start to think are they just saying this because she's writing or was there a genuine worry that she was you know people say that she was too uh too wild to be let abroad as in to go outside um and it, it's quite hard to know exactly what it is that had caused people to think that but margaret is a self-described melancholic it's almost a kind of description that she revels in she's always describing how she is sad anxious and melancholia in the period was very much tied to the theories of the humors and all of this um and a melancholic was someone who could write and was very clever but wasn't necessarily balanced in their humors and her melancholia is perhaps tied to her image of herself as a writer in many ways. But she is very anxious. So, so we have descriptions of her waiting outside her sister's bedroom to check she was breathing throughout the night. Then as she grows up, she's anxious about each of her family members. I mean, for good reason. They were, they were dying in a war. Then after that, when she's in France her melancholy is a kind of depression it seems to be i mean what she's writing in that letter is indicative of a very depressive outlook and when she's trying to have children with her husband william uh, the doctor dr mayan writes a letter to him saying it's hard enough to get children with good courage is is a line he says and then to paraphrase he, he finishes by saying it's almost impossible if you're trying with melancholia or in this state so it was always the idea that she was very much of a, of a depressive, melancholic tendency. And she does self-medicate with bleeding and purging and all of these kind of foul-sounding, horrible cures, which sound absolutely horrific. Um, but on the other hand, in, after the restoration, she was the woman who would turn up to the theatre at a performance of a play uh, with a dress cut to below the level of her nipples, which she then rouged and attached to uh, nipple tassels too she went she was one of the first ever women to visit the royal society and she went with a dress so long it required six attendant ladies to carry it in and her whole carriage was accessorized with like tassels and horses and bells so she's kind of always making herself appear so grand and like a statement she wore things that were ridiculous for the period i mean th those costumes were were actually outrageous even then and um, so I think it's a kind of very deep-rooted tension within her between being so shy, so she's always describing herself as bashful and not wanting to talk, and wanting to be the centre of attention. And it's not always being the centre of the attention for her intellectual pursuits either. So a deep-riven contrast in between the two, and it's quite hard to reconcile. Yeah, that's it's interesting. But also, you know, I think that... I think that it's something that a lot of people can identify with and having these nuances within your character and like having a very public side and how you would one would want to project oneself publicly, but having then more of a self-awareness of, um, you know, emotional fluctuations. I think it, you know, something without being anachronistic, I think we're so much more aware of mental health these days and just discussions around mental health. It's much easier to be able to observe somebody from the past and think, okay, well, that's that's obviously dem that's demonstrations of certain fears or uh, anxieties that we may experience as humans. It's a human emotion um, that we can experience today, and how that would manifest in in the context of the seventeenth century. Um, but what I wanted to ask you as well about about in in that sense of Margaret being you know applying a, a modern theory, but like to her, but but Margaret being 
more of a modern thinker because you've we've talked between us about you using the term feminist in regard to Margaret Cavendish and the problems in doing so, but also the necessity in doing so. And I wanted to ask how you feel about engaging with that term in, in regard to her literary work, but also, as you just explained, these incredibly ostentatious displays of, of self and identity. Definitely. So it's a, it's a term that I, I came into contact, it came into like difficulty with initially when when writing and researching the book because there are so many areas in which you just initially just want to reach for it so margaret in her later life after beginning with poetry goes on to write prose she does a bit more prose she writes philosophy then she starts writing plays and like huge numbers of plays two whole volumes of them and they were probably never performed during her lifetime and she almost doesn't even write them to be performed because at the time the theaters were shut because of the war she very much never really expected to see them and instead instead describes them as being staged within the mind which is a lovely idea but they have now a couple been performed but in these plays I mean it's hard to describe them as anything other than a coherent expression of feminist thought because she describes how marriage is basically a prison for many women women are kept subjugated she describes convents where women retreat to educate themselves in one play women leave so that they don't have to marry but instead of doing anything else they decide to dedicate themselves to bettering themselves through books and learning she describes another play where women retreat into a convent altogether without men to avoid marrying but also whilst they're there engage in kind of sapphic love she writes about very early depictions of, of lesbian love um so she is always continually describing these these areas where women are a separate sex and very much a separate group to men which is kind of some of the earliest things you need to do in order to be able to set up a kind of feminist quote-unquote philosophy but she does this alongside a, a play where women have uh, an alter alternative society to men and they fight a battle for the men in war it's called bell and campo one of her best plays and quite based off some of henrietta maria's exploits in the civil war and these women come in to rescue the men because the men fail and then the men have to revere them as goddesses. So this is definitely one area where you want to talk about her expression of thinking about women as very much separate to men, people whom society happens differently to them because they are women. They are more likely to get married, uh, to have a kind of subservient relationship in, in a marriage, to feel pressured into it, to not make a choice in their marriage, to end up in very different circumstances. Another area of her writing is she writes continually and all the time in almost every aspect of her work about childbirth and about how childbirth is pretty much body horror for women. Some of her most horrific scenes are of women panting and dying in birth or also, it's just horrifying, she also writes kind of very funny lines, kind of riffing off women who dedicate themselves to buying all sorts of new linens for their babies and like that's all they think about when they're pregnant. So she's always thinking about how women's lives are very, very different to men's and I set about thinking this and I think we probably can, people are very reluctant to use the term feminist uh, for things kind of uh, before, you know, if we think about like the earliest Mary Wollstonecraft's vindication of the rights of women. But a lot of the later 17th century is saturated with women thinking about their role in society as independent to and separate from men and their role in society being worse than it is than it is for men. So we have Mary Astle a couple of uh, decades after Margaret dies and she is 
a very serious thinker and she writes this book called A Serious Proposal to the Ladies where she kind of recommends that women should retreat from society to live in spiritual and educative contemplation. So I think we probably can trace the history of feminist thought far, far earlier than uh, we often think we can in kind of popular culture. And Hannah Dawson's Penguin anthology on this is just brilliant because it goes... I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. It goes back so much earlier. Mm. And then I thought, do I want to call her and these other women who are writing in this period proto-feminists? Is that a a better term? And I struggled with this for a while and it kind of seems like the easier thing to do because it very much sets things up and nobody could really quibble with it as much. And I decided not to because I decided to call her a feminist and to um to just live with it um because if you call her a proto-feminist I felt like I was putting her on a train or a timeline of feminist thought which meant that things that came after her were better or fuller expressions or more developed or more purely feminist when that's actually just so not true if we think about you know the stuff she is writing, she has coherently thought of as women as a separate group in society so wonderfully and so fully that I thought that it kind of, it was almost derogatory and patronising. Why why does she have to be proto anything? She can be an expression of feminist thought that is just different to feminist thought now. Um, so that's on the writing side, but yeah. No, I would, com- I would completely agree. I think to remove the label of feminism is to remove agency of women prior to the 18th century. It's sort of, you know, there, there was, there, I mean, certainly when you go back into periods like the Middle Ages, for, for me it's very difficult to, to locate the voices of women in the archive, particularly as the archives are built by men. You know, it's it's very hard to navigate, to navigate them and try to um, d- rediscover some of these voices. But there are demonstrations, there are glimpses, there are these little glimpses of dem- demonstra- demonstrations of agency that women are showing that you could you could call feminism and actually you have I went mentioned earlier Christine de Pizan and thinking of Bell Bell and Campo is thinking of Christine de Pizan's book of the City of Ladies which basically is a city built by ladies for ladies to live in and it's sort of this you know this um dystopian fantasy of, of 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 a world run by women and I think to sort of I think that is that is early feminist thinking I think we see some of the patterns of these these women living in the 14th 15th 16th 17th centuries still in existence today we still think in the same terms and so I think you're right about not using the term proto-feminist as well because again you said that sort of gives it a timeline but we also there is so much that we don't know their evidence is not there it hasn't survived. How can we discount that its very existence by using that term? So yeah, I think it is completely. important to be able to apply that to women who are exhibiting it, in the, even within the context that they are doing so. And it doesn't mean we have to think they, you know, automatically or immediately slot into our ideas about feminism, because that's damaging to assume that. I mean, that's a huge historical assumption and not one we really want to, because our ideas about feminism are changing with every year and decade. Um, so letting her exist within her own space, as with all of those like kind of lost voices in the archive as well, but not being afraid to call them what they are. One of my favourite things about Christine de Pizan is that there's every chance, uh, very, very strong evidence to suggest that Margaret Cavendish owned one of the most beautiful manuscripts of her work. Um, so had a copy, an illustrated copy of the Book of the City of Ladies, which is gorgeous. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. I would highly encourage anybody to go and have a look at it. And it's in the, I think it's in the British Library, actually, in their permanent collection. Um, so as we step off our soapbox about uh, proto-feminism and feminism, I would ask, I wanted to ask you a more sort of personal question. And this is the sort of question I think gets asked at the beginning of interviews about, about 
you know, when, about your book and um, about and I felt the same with mine. It would often be asked at the beginning, and I sort of felt like actually I think it's more appropriate with the context of the of the interview to to to, to ask it at the end. Um, you know, writing a biography is is such an investment in a character, and it's built not only on an interest but a real connection in order to want to write their life because that is an extraordinary amount of work and it's huge responsibility as well rewriting the life of somebody. So what was it for you that really drew you to Margaret Cavendish? Because she is famous in that she's familiar, but she's not a household name. And I was wondering, how did you stumble across her and thought, because there is a moment, isn't there, where you go, I need to write the life of this person. And I wondered what that moment was for you. Yeah, so I'd always been interested in, um, actually slightly later, so like very early 18th century, thinking about quote-unquote feminist thoughts and how we could trace that and uh, what it meant for the explosion of women's writing with greater interest in pamphlets, printing presses, all of these things. You can chart an uptick. And I think I was probably talking about it as as I have a, an ability to do probably far too much. And somebody turned to me and said, you really need to read some Margaret Cavendish. And I went away and there's a Penguin Classics edition, which is amazing and I would really advise people to get, which has her most famous work, which is called The Blazing World, which is this most amazing riot of kind of utopian feminist thought about a whole new world which she invents it's also probably the very first work of science fiction which margaret cavendish kind of invents and i was reading this and i thought this is just psychedelic this it's is also a great title who's point out i'm like ah oh, that's the sort of title where you think oh god i love so that good. title now for my books they're so, such a good title <laughs> i know and it's wild it's got like you know half polar bear men golden submarines a moment of like sapphic spiritual sex a kind of threesome moment it is wild and I was reading it and I just thought this is absolutely psychedelic and so I carried on reading the rest of her prose romances which are in that collection and they're all amazing they're about women who are pursued assaulted raped and kind of managed to overcome it they cross dress they fight they hide all of these things and it became so interested in the idea that this thought seemed so so spectacularly out of time was my initial thought I was like this feels so modern this feels so wonderful and the more and more I read, I realised it wasn't out of time at all, but was very much the product of a time. And I really, really wanted to tap into that and started reading, reading more about her and realised that this year was her 400th anniversary. Um, so I certainly had to get my skates on um, and start thinking about it. But I have to say that in doing it, you talk about how it's kind of a labour of love. I, I definitely went slightly mad um, because I had lots of conversations with her in my dreams. Oh, yeah, that happens, doesn't it? And um, <laughs> But I think you're right about, you know, when you are writing the biography, of person it is so much of that is is you are telling the story of the time in which they lived and they are the they are the vector they are the vessel in which you are exploring that that time and it's through their experiences that you're telling the story of the 17th century which you did very very well may i point out anyway um I think we've we've I think we have covered so much about Margaret Cavendish and if people aren't rushing off to buy a blazing world and reading more of her um, massively psychedelic exuberant output, then um, I think, you know, I don't know what's wrong with them. Anyway. I very much agree. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with me, Francesca, and thank you to Intelligence Squared who have hosted um, this podcast and I hope everyone else has enjoyed listening to it. Thank you so much, Helen. So lovely talking to you.
Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.